0: You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by men. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt springs produce fresh water. So, as promised, I just want to recap a little bit of where we've been so far in James. Um, James is a relatively short book. It's only five chapters. Uh, you could read it probably in about 20 to 25 minutes, depending on how fast you read. James uh, doesn't necessarily identify himself this way in the, in the book here, but we know from church history and from the testimony um, that the church gives us that this James is the James who was the half brother of Jesus. So he's half brother because obviously Joseph was not his biological father. So James, along with Jude, uh, who wrote the book of Jude, are the children of um, Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born. He's writing to predominantly to Jewish Christians who were scattered abroad during uh, the persecution of the church, which we read about in the early part of Acts. I think it's Acts 7. Um, and we know this because the word um, scattered here is actually a technical term uh, that we, we probably hear called the diaspora or the dispersion. And it refers the only other place that's used in the New Testament is to that act of the, the Jewish Christians being dispersed after the persecution. Chapter one brings us through a, doctrin- a doctrinal section here that emphasizes that God is sovereign. He's perfect. That there's no, there's no variation or change in him that he's stable and because of his stability, we can trust him. It also talks about the fact that we, uh, we know that he never tempts us with sin. He never tempts us with evil. And that is because there is no principle of evil within him. And although he brings us into trials, uh, those trials have the purpose of growing us and sanctifying us. And so we can count them as joy, not that the trials themselves are joyful or enjoyable, but that we can consider them joy because of the purpose that they serve in our lives. He closes out that, that section there by emphasizing that we must study and obey what the scripture has to say, because it's, it's through the implanted word, the Holy spirit implanted word that God gives us, that he brings us to perfection and gives us new life. In chapter two, James begins to move over to the primary purpose of his letter and that is to sort of discuss or to teach his readers that what we do and how we live demonstrates and reveals the reality of whether or not that implanted word has been implanted. So we are saved by faith alone through grace alone, but we are never saved by a faith that is alone. A true Christian will always be doing the work that God gives us to give. Particularly in James, he has a concern for how it is that Christians treat each other. So he uses this example of favoritism in the church to show that those who would um, make determinations about who's the in crowd and who's the out crowd based on external categories, they really reveal that they don't actually trust the Lord, that they're trusting in external things and external categories. In particular, in verse 126, which we'll talk a little bit more about, he ties this to the way that we speak about other people. And that leads us directly into chapter three here, where he starts to unpack this understanding of the tongue and its power, not only to bring about certain things, but to really reveal the reality of who we are. Now, as I mentioned in the sort of introductory sermon, James exists in kind of this Jewish Christian culture that was prominent in the promised land that has a very different sort of set of um, metaphors and examples and even the language that he uses than we see in someone like Paul. Paul was a classically educated Jew who was trained in Jerusalem. So he has a set of, uh, set of linguistic things, a set of um, principles and a body of teaching that he's drawing on, James was, as far as we can understand, it was not a formally educated man. Um, He grew up in Galilee, in in Nazareth, the same place that Jesus did in that sort of northern region of Israel. The, The Gospels reference a sort of a proverb in the area that nothing good comes out of Galilee. And so Galilee was kind of this backwoods country, which I think you could probably think about it as, as the people who live in Boston probably think about the people who live out here. Maybe in our little pocket, because we're right by the college, we're, we're an exception. But if you think about how someone from the city thinks about someone from the country, that's the kind of difference we're talking about. But for those of us who've lived in the city and also lived in the country, we know that there's a certain type of wisdom that may not be book smarts, if you want to call it that, that comes from rural folk. So James represents that kind of community learning that we see. He does seem to be aware of, or at least um, tying into some similar themes that we see in other places. So, concerns about the dangerous nature of the tongue are certainly not unique to, to James. Um, it's a well-established concern and in principle in, in wisdom literature, both within the Bible and then also outside of the Bible. So, just a couple quick examples. You don't have to turn there, but the book of Proverbs, uh, verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 11 says, "...the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. Proverbs 11:9 With his mouth the godless destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous escape. Now some of the examples that we'll see later, the, the metaphors that he uses, were actually so common that we see the exact same trio of examples in Greek literature and Roman philosophers, we see it in other Middle Eastern um, narratives and other Middle Eastern wisdom literature. It's unlikely that James is drawing from that wide source. We might say Paul would be drawing from that because he was, again, classically educated and that Greek culture had worked its way into the Jewish body of teaching. James is most likely drawing directly from the Proverbs. But this is such a common grace, natural principle that he's about to teach, that those same common themes had cropped up independently in other places in the world. In verse 1 here, it sort of takes a strange pivot, and and the scholars are divided as to what this means. He says in verse 1, "...not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly." And I, I had to chuckle a little bit as I was preparing to go into my first eight week preaching series here, that the first verse that I get to preach on is that not many of us should be t- teachers. So pray for me. Some scholars look at this and think that this means all of the language about the tongue and the warnings against misusing the tongue uh, are applying to teachers, which wouldn't mean there's not a principle to be drawn from that for everyone else, but it does change a little bit about how we read the text. Other scholars will say that this is an example to demonstrate how dangerous the, t- the tongue can be, and that's why not many should be teachers, because the tongue is so dangerous that it actually should restrict who goes into this teaching field. So the rest of this is a explanation and a statement for and to... the the common person in the pew who's not in a teaching position, but the example of a teacher and how dangerous being a teacher can be is the example to emphasize that. I think that that is the the best view of the text because apart from this reference to teachers, there really isn't much else that would be specific to teachers in any way. So James creates kind of this logical argument. He says, we are all sinners. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone is at fault, is not at fault in what he says, he's perfect. So the argument goes like this. Everyone sins, especially in, in the area of sinning with the tongue. Therefore, not many of you should be teachers. And the reason is that the teacher's primary tool is the tongue. And so because that is what's being done by those who teach and speak publicly, they're more likely to fall into that sin than other people. And he puts forward this sort of hypothetical example. Now we know this is a hypothetical example because he says immediately prior, we all stumble in many ways. So it wouldn't make sense for him to say, we all stumble in many ways, if he was then going to immediately say, but you could be perfect if you really tried very hard. That is not what he is saying. Instead, he's putting forward a hypothetical example to close out his argument at how significant the tongue is. It's so significant that if some hypothetical person out there could control their tongue, then controlling the rest of their life would be a relatively easy task. It's like um, if you think about Superman, right? He's this, this immensely strong person. It'd be like saying, well, if you could lift a 12-ton boulder, then lifting up this, this two-ton elephant wouldn't be a challenge. That's what James is getting at. The task of taming the tongue is so significant and so insurmountable that if you were able to do that, everything else would be a cakewalk. He goes on here and he gives some, some examples. I think we have a tendency to read these as completely negative examples, but I think we should be careful because the, the Bible doesn't seem to support that. And just as we said in, in those Proverbs passages we read, using the tongue properly can have great positive effect. So we shouldn't necessarily read these as entirely negative examples. So for example, a horse's bit. I haven't done a lot of horseback riding, but the horseback riding that I've done, I was very glad that that horse was trained to obey my commands based on what I did with the bridle. Because that horse is so big and so strong that if it was not trained and did not obey me, I could be in a lot of trouble. So the bit is a positive example, potentially a positive example, of one way that our tongue can be a positive force for change, not only within our own lives, which we'll talk about in a minute here, but also in the way that we speak to and about other people. Someone who has a kind word to share at the right moment can reorient a person's entire day or week or month or sometimes even the course of their entire life with one kind word at the right time, one appropriately spoken Bible verse, or one request to pray for someone or with someone can change everything. A little bit of Greek trivia, I won't bore you with the actual Greek, but the word here that James uses when he says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses, is the same word that he uses in verse 26 of chapter one when he says, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein, so tight rein is the same word. And one of the things James does in this letter is in the beginning of the letter, he sort of outlines all the topics he's going to go through. He presents kind of a, a table of contents. So he, he talks about the tongue. We see that come back up. He talks about treating widows and orphans. The theme of poverty and how we treat the poor comes back up. So that you'll see some of these repeated themes over the next week as we jump back to James's introduction to show how he kind of telegraphed where he's going. The next example is a ship's rudder. Now, I'm not a sailor. Gene could probably tell you more about, about this feature of uh, reality than I could. But an extremely large boat is directed and guided by a relative to its size, a relatively small rudder. Now, some of the rudders of, of large boats are still very large. But compared to the size of the rudder or of the boat itself, they're, they're just a tiny portion of that. And that entire boat is controlled. The direction it goes and ultimately the destination that it reaches is controlled generally by one guy doing this. If he falls asleep on the job and goes a little too far to one direction, by one degree here, two degrees there, that boat ends up in an entirely different place than it's supposed to. So if, if we have a, you think of an angle and it's a one degree angle, you get 10 feet out, you're still pretty close to each other. You get 10 miles out, you're a lot farther off course than you would have been. And so when when Paul comes back down here, or James comes back down here later to talk about the course of life that the tongue sets fire to, this is the analogy that he's starting to pull through. That the tongue is, even though it's a small part of the body, and we could even think of the tongue in the sort of metaphorical sense, even though our speech is probably a small part of our overall conduct, it still has this ability to determine the direction of our life and the direction of our behavior. Now, this last example is, is I think, a purely negative example. He brings up the the idea of a small spark that can set fire to an entire forest. Now, we, we think of wildfires and we think of the wildfires out west in California that burn out of control. We have wildfires in this region occasionally, but because it's not as dry, they're not usually as significant. They're put out a lot faster. But think of all the technology that goes, that we've developed, that has used in order to fight these wildfires. Now, get rid of all of that and imagine a forest fire. How terrifying would that concept be? So we can kind of think, oh, a forest is on fire. They'll just get the helicopters. They'll scoop some water up. They'll put the fire out. Now, people who live in California understand that it's not that easy, but now think of the people who lived in this period, in this region of the world that's extremely dry and arid. Think about the damage a wildfire could do. Think about how a house could burn down. There was no social network. There was no insurance money. There was nothing to recuperate that. So this example is far more dangerous and scary than, than even we would think of as a forest fire. In a similar fashion, the sins of the tongue or the sins of our speech have the potential to burn our entire lives to the ground, both literally in the real world and spiritually. So I was I was watching a a YouTube video the other day and there was a a woman in uh, New York and in New York they have these city share bicycles that you you scan the QR code, it unlocks the bike. You take it and you dock it back in and you get charged for the usage and this woman who happened to be pregnant it's not really relevant to the story but she was pregnant she was a pa coming off a 12-hour shift at the hospital she worked at she came out and she undocked a bike a group of young men approached her and uh they said well no that was my bike they she started crying for help both parties were probably in the wrong in certain ways but Uh, because of the appearance of it and because of the way she spoke to and about these people, both during the incident and after she was terminated from her job from the hospital. So the way that we speak has the power to burn down our lives, but even more so and more significant than that, it says it's a corrupting force full of deadly poison. So there's this double principle that what we do with our mouth, what we do with our tongue, the things we say, not just about other people, but to other people, the sort of self-talk that we share with ourselves has this ability to corrupt and poison us. Uh, Jesus says this, this is probably where James learned it. He says in Matthew fifteen eleven, he says, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth is what makes him unclean. We'll we'll get into the principle of that in a little bit here, but what we say is not neutral. It changes us. If you speak about a certain thing for long enough in a certain way, it will change how you think about that thing. I see this happen all the time in theological discussions. People get a a concept of the Trinity or of, of the incarnation. They get the words wrong. And at first it's very neutral, it's very harmless, but the longer they talk about it, using those wrong words, those wrong patterns of speech, the more and more they start to believe the wrong thing about the Trinity. Words can burn our spiritual and our our physical lives to the ground if we're not careful with them. Now, he goes on uh, and he says that even though all sorts of creatures have been tamed and are being tamed. There's a a clever usage of these four categories of creatures that maps up to the four categories of creatures um, listed in Genesis to sort of say all creatures. So even though at the time and even more so now in our day, all manner of creatures were being tamed, Even, even creatures out in the sea were being tamed, snakes, birds of the air, all sorts of things were being tamed. As difficult as that is, no one can tame the tongue. So again, that hypothetical example of the perfect man who tames the tongue can't exist because no man can tame the tongue. But the, the tongue also has this ability to reveal who and what we actually are. So if you, look, um, if you look here in the next passage, it says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. This goes back to that theme that James is very concerned about, that our works reveal the nature of our faith. That corrupt, rotten, evil works reveal a dead, useless, ineffectual faith. Again, drawing, I think, from Jesus' example, he um, he uses some examples of these kind of contrasting, conflicting things that don't make any sense. And the purpose of all of those examples is to say that a uh, Person who claims the name of Christ, who claims to worship God, yet talks about his brothers and sisters in this way, is like a salt or a, a spring that somehow puts forth both sweet water or salty water or fresh water and bitter water or salty water. That's a contradiction. It doesn't happen. Either you're well, your spring is salty, or it's fresh water. Either it's sweet or it's bitter. He also uses this example of fruit, which again, I think he's drawing from the teaching of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 12, uh, verses 33 through 37, he says, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. He's speaking to the Pharisees at this point. He says, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the outflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. This inconsistency, and and I'm preaching to the choir here. I, I wish we had a choir. We should have a choir. I'm preaching to the choir here because... S- sins of the speech, whether it's online, on Twitter or Facebook, or whether it's the way I speak about people, this is something that I struggle with too. This is not unique to any one person. This is something we all struggle with. It reveals how divided we are. It reveals that although sanctification, when we come to, f- come to faith, sanctification is something that God does to us that is operative through the whole man right? Sometimes we read from a document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism and it says that sanctification is the work of God's spirit that renews the image of God in the whole man. But then in the next section, it talks about how that sanctification is not complete. It's not perfect. So there's this dichotomy, there's this war between the sanctified part and the corruption that remains. This struggle we have to do and say the right things even when we know what the right things are, is because we're not perfectly sanctified. Now, I think sometimes we, we view these sins of the tongue as though they're kind of little bugaboos, like they're not that big of a deal. So what if I say a nasty comment about someone behind their back? They're never going to find out. So no harm, no foul. Or so what if I cuss out that person in traffic? They don't know. Everybody does it. I, um, I was getting my morning Dunkin' Donuts coffee the other day and I was backing out of, I was pulling into my spot and someone was backing out and they almost ran into me and I had this split second where I just wanted to just let them have it. Not to their face. I just wanted to let them have it. This is, this is in all of us. But the reason this is so significant is because God's law is a cohesive whole. Earlier in the letter, James says that if you've sinned in one part of the letter or one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole. You're violating the whole thing. And there's a a special relationship between the third commandment, which is the prohibition against blaspheming God's name, and the ninth commandment, which is the prohibition against telling false witness against your neighbor or slandering your neighbor. And both of those converge in the sixth commandment, which is the prohibition against murder. And I want to explain that to you. So reading from uh, Genesis, um, I don't actually have the chapter number here. I think it's chapter seven, but this is uh, the account of, of God's covenant with Noah. And he says here, you must not eat life that has its lifeblood in it, meat that has its lifeblood in it. For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of God has God made man. So after the flood, Noah comes off the ark. God says, you can eat animals now, but don't eat with the blood and the animals are going to be afraid of you. And I will hold the animals accountable if they kill a man, because the image of God in man is so significant, even with all of the corruption that happened in the fall that image of God is so significant that to murder an image bearer is an assault on God himself. And if you look at the, the reasoning leading up to the flood, it's because man had become violent everywhere and their thoughts were only evil continually. So violence against image bearers was the immediate reason that God destroyed everybody except Noah and his family. Murder is a terrible sin because it represents a direct assault against the image of God. And slandering God's image bearers has the same relationship to blaspheming God as murder does. So if we had more time, maybe we'll do this another, another time because this theme will come back up. The Ten Commandments have this interesting structure where the first four are prohibitions and positive commands on how we relate to God. The second six are, um, they're are governing and restricting and regulating how we relate to each other. So the first table of law is love the Lord your God. The second table is love your neighbor as yourself. There's an interesting relationship where commands in the second table follow and map and relate to commands in the first table. So um, not blaspheming God maps up to not blaspheming image bearers. Idolatry or worshiping other gods often maps up to adultery and is compared to it and Jesus makes the connection in Matthew that when we slander somebody or when we express unjustified anger we've actually murdered them in our hearts he says in the sermon on the mount you've heard it said of old to those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment but i say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Which is exactly what James says, that the tongue itself is a fire and it sets fire to the entire course of our life and is itself set on fire by hell. Just to emphasize the point, this is what Paul has to say about those who um, speak this way about God's image bearers. This is from chapter one of Romans, verse twenty eight and following. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. I read that again. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Notice how God-haters is slotted right there in the middle of all of these other things that have to do with how we treat each other. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Ultimately, we can either be the kind of person who loves God and uses our tongue for glory, or who hates our brothers and curses them. We cannot be both. You can be the kind of person who screams and swears at the guy who cut you off in traffic, or you can be the kind of person who worships the Lord on the Lord's day. You can be the kind of person who is disrespectful to their boss and talks about them behind their back, or you can be the kind of person who shares the gospel with their neighbor and prays for them faithfully. Now, again, none of this is going to be perfect in this life. We are this bundle of contradictions, but at the end of the day, in the final analysis, either the Lord will recognize that you are his and your fruit will be a demonstration of that. It won't determine it, but it will be a demonstration of that or it won't. So we have to make a decision, empowered by the Holy Spirit, driven by the Holy Spirit, of course, but we have to make a decision as to what kind of person we're going to be and we have to strive to that end. As I said, he gives us these two examples. He says, a spring uh, spring which produces sweet and bitter water the word here that's translated as salty is really better understood as um, as bitter, and the word that is fresh is better understood as sweet. Um, it's actually a word related to glucose. It's the same word we get sugar from. He uses the example of a fruit tree that bears different kinds of fruit than what it's uh, designed to do. A fig tree that bears olives. A grapevine that bears, you know, apples. Those are things we, we instinctively understand are nonsense. And then he kind of puts a pin in it with another example of a salt water and actually referring to salts this time, a salt water that produces fresh water, salt water spring. So I don't, I don't know how many of you have spent a lot of time on the ocean. It's always a little bit of fun to taste the salt water just because it's so different. But if you were out on the ocean and you were dying of thirst, you would not want a salt spring. If you were in the desert and you found just like the, the people of Israel did, they're out in the desert, they're wandering through the desert. They come upon this oasis, everybody's excited, they taste it and it's bitter and they can't drink it. It took a miracle of God to change that bitter water into sweet water. And it takes a miracle of God to change the bitter outflow of our hearts. The salty, corrupt, brackish, stinky outflow of our hearts into something that is sweet and that gives life. That's the Holy Spirit's work. As we transition here to the Lord's Supper, I want to I wanna make a connection for you. If you could turn in your Bibles uh, with me to 1 Corinthians 11, and I'm going to read from um, verses 17 through 22 here. Now, this is a section that we often go to when we're coming to, to communion. Um, it has what's sometimes called the words of institution, which starts in verse 23, though I'll be very familiar with you. But it's important to note What leads into this? So starting in verse 17, it says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Paul's concern here is the same as James's concern when he talks about showing favoritism when he talks about those who do not care for the or- orphans and widows. They were rich members of the Corinthian church who were having their meal at home. Then they were, because they didn't have to work as much, they were coming to the, Lord, to the church service. They were getting better seats and they were going to this shared communion meal and they were eating all the food. And the poor people who had to work and managed to scrape their way off to come to the service, there was nothing left for them by the time they got there. So as we come into the Lord's Supper, we need to take that principle that Paul's instructions about how to do the supper worthily, they're in the context of how we treat each other, how we treat other Christians especially, but how we treat other human beings in general. I want us to all take a few minutes of reflection I'll read the words of institution here, but one of of the things that we're encouraged to do is to examine ourselves. Now, the Lord's Supper is for any baptized Christian who professes faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, You don't have to be a member of this church. It's open to everybody who is a, a believer in Jesus. But we should not come to the table if we are harboring sin. If we have sin in our life that we refuse to allow God to deal with whether that's a sin of of the tongue or some other sin, we should not come to the table if we refuse to give Jesus our full attention. So as we we come to the supper, I want us to, to pray about that and to think about that. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is a provision for that. We all stumble in many ways. None of us is perfect. No one can tame the tongue but Jesus Christ has made a way for us to come to him either way. All we have to do is trust him. And that includes trusting him. If we've come to a point today before the Lord's supper, where we feel like we've got unconfessed sin. We feel like we're harboring sin that we're not willing to give up. We can trust him and repent. And there's no waiting period. One of the, principles of the, the Reformed churches in the Netherlands, and the, they, they wrote the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession, which we also quote from from time to time. They talk about how this is, a, this is a sacrament of encouragement. We use the word ordinance, but the principle is the same. This is an ordinance that is designed to give us the promises of God. And that promise is that all who eat and drink in faith will surely be forgiven because of what Christ has done.